This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager. Joining me, as always, is our pastor of spiritual formation, Reverend Sam Kastensmith, who today, like a, like a virus, has invaded someone else's office. <laughs> it really is like, I, this feels like a Where's Waldo cartoon book. It really does. Like, I'm I, another location today. We're trying to just, ladies and gentlemen, just so you understand, we're the way that we're doing this. We're using a technology that uh, does a particularly high bandwidth connection over the internet, so that Sam and I sound as though we're sitting in the same room on microphones as much as possible. But but he's somewhere else. the The primary recording is being done on a laptop right in front of me, so I don't have latency problems. But he's traveling around looking for a quiet room without any echo that has really good internet service. So that's the quest. <laughs> so, so the traveling today was, I was planning on doing this from home, but now that they've lifted some of the restrictions, the, the traffic on the turnpike was too loud. So I came here, but they're doing worship rehearsal. So I couldn't do it in the normal bunker where I go to. Then I went to my office and there's internet latency issues. Now I'm in Scott Carson's office and he has no idea. Yes. So, that, you know, as I said, like a virus, Pastor Sam invades locations <laughs> looking for a place that we can record the podcast. So at any rate, what, uh, we're here this week to talk with you again about revival. This is uh, episode two or part two of our series on the subject of revival. And this week, we thought we'd take a look at the verse that we have adopted as our theme verse on revival on this entire seven week series. And that's Second Chronicles 7.14, the if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, so on and so forth. It's a very famous verse. Everybody, I think, has seen it on somebody's refrigerator magnet or mm-hmm. uh, it's been somebody's life verse written on the inside cover of their Bible. And it's a great verse. Um, but I think we need to note that it's from Second Chronicles. And now what's important about that? What's important about that is it's not from Proverbs or Psalms or something where you can grab a verse or two from the midst of something and feel like you've got the complete, you know, that you're okay in doing that. I've got the complete thought. I've got the gist of it here. Chronicles is a book of history. Uh, and so there's things that are going on here. And in order to understand a verse, you need to understand the things that have that have happened up until that point. We have to give them some context, some framework. And Sam, when you and I were talking about this earlier as we were getting ready to, to start recording, you pointed out that Second Chronicles 7.14 isn't even a complete sentence. It's like <laughs> it's part of one sentence that's been clipped out of there. Yeah, so the, the Lord appears to Solomon. They've just dedicated the temple. Solomon has built a temple for God in Jerusalem, And when Solomon's given the dedication, he prays to God. And so here's the Lord's response um, that comes to Solomon. And he says, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place, the temple in Jerusalem, for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up the heavens, and so if you read this, you're going, okay, what's going on here? But God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, that's certainly something we should think about today. 
If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so that's the context where this comes from. Um, and so if you go back and you were to read Second Chronicles chapter 6 in the previous passage, that's where the context for this all comes from, because Solomon is coming before the Lord. He's saying, okay, we've established a house for your name, for your glory in Jerusalem. We're, we're like permanent now, but I know we're going to mess up. And he begins praying and asking God again and again through all these different situations. He's saying, you know, if, if we do this, then please hear from heaven and forgive us. And if we do this, then, you know, we have to do this and this and this and acknowledge and turn again and pray and plead with you, and then you'll hear from heaven and forgive. And so he goes through situation. If if a man sins against his neighbor, if your people Israel are defeated before their enemies, if heaven is shut up and there's no rain, if there's a famine in the land, if there's pestilence, blight, mildew, locust, caterpillar, um, if enemies besiege, if a foreigner comes and is looking to worship, he lays down all these examples of things that might come that cause the Lord to be displeased. And he says, allow us to come and seek your face and turn and repent and please God, hear from heaven and forgive. So Solomon is starting you know, from a, from a pretty smart place. He's He's dedicated the temple and he's looking at the Lord saying, we're going to screw up. we're going to mess up and all of this is going to happen but if your favor turns from us because of our sin allow us to come back and hear from heaven and forgive us and so seven second chronicle 7 14 is god's response saying i will yeah it's interesting as you were describing that that solomon laying these these things out like always, I have many questions. Um, <laughs> the first question that occurred to me is, do you see a connection between that and, at least I did, Abraham negotiating on part of Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, it's like, mm. it's, a, it's a different, I mean, it's obviously a slightly different thing, but, but Solomon is saying to the Lord, well, if your people do this, what if your mm-hmm. people do that? What if people do this over here? And Abraham, you know, talking to God about, would you destroy this town for 50 righteous? No, I won't destroy it for 50. What about 45? You know, <laughs> Lord, strike me not down for asking this, but what about 25? You know, it's like Abraham's bargaining down. And in in those situations, I feel sort of like, you know, it just seems like this is so typical. First of all, it's typical of human beings to want to negotiate with God, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. We want to negotiate with God. We want to know how bad is bad, how good is good, you know, and with God, it it's really, it's never a magnitude of degree, um, you know, there, as, as I once said <laughs> in a sermon, some of us are sinners in all caps with three fire emojis. So, you know, <laughs> it's not a matter of degree. Um, and yet Solomon was doing that. Uh, so my other question is, why do you think Solomon was doing that? Do you feel like there was a reason that he was naming all these things? Yeah, I think Solomon, you know, he's got this great wisdom. One of the things that he absolutely knows is that every human being on the planet there's none of us that are righteous. In fact, if you, in the previous chapter in verse 36, he kind of says it perfectly. And this is one of the last things that he brings to the Lord in these scenarios. But in verse 36, he says, if they sin against you, and then he adds this clause, for there is no one who does not sin. 
and you're angry with them and you give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to a land far or near, well, that's going to be a big deal you know, in, in a few hundred years when the Israelites actually are going to be carried away captive. And so he goes on and he negotiates. He says, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive and they repent and they plead with you, and he goes on, if they repent with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of captivity to which they were carried captive and they pray toward the land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house that I've built for your name, And then he says, then hear from heaven. And he keeps repeating that, by the way, throughout all of this. Then hear from heaven, God, your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And that's the style of all these petitions. Solomon is going saying, we're going to mess up. And so when you judge us by bringing this, or when in your sovereignty you bring this against us, if we turn back to you, please relent, hear our prayer from heaven and forgive our sins. Mm -hmm. And he's there's multiples of those. It is interesting to see because you had me this very uh, helpfully highlighted uh, version of the text as I was looking through the highlights that you'd put in it to see Solomon saying this, then mm-hmm. hear from heaven, then hear from heaven, mm-hmm. then hear from heaven. You know, because that is um, I mean, there's even a famous song about it, the if my people song mm-hmm. and. And the chorus is that rousing, then I will hear from heaven. And everybody hits the big note there because hmm. we're like, God is going to hear from heaven. And and yet God was repeating Solomon's words back to him. God was yeah, saying, which, yes, Solomon, then I will hear from heaven. And so this is a why, – why do we do this for a picture of revival? You know, when Solomon dedicates the temple, and we'll get to this in, the, in a minute, at the beginning of this chapter in, in chapter 7 of First Kings – Fire falls from heaven, and you know everybody comes together. There's this incredible worship. Uh, they're laying down, but all of this is in the context of this worship. And so the Lord has just shown His favor. He's just given them a, a positive response to all these pleadings, and then comes the Lord's answer: "I will, I will." And so this is the context for this passage. And one of the things that I love about that, I mean, it gets back to the importance of prayer. Solomon goes before the Lord and says, Lord, you know, I, I, I know your heart in this, but I know also that we're wicked. And so please show your mercy here. And he lays down these prayers, petitions, like, here's, here's my idea, Lord, please accept this. And what's stunning is the, this, the infinite God of the universe looks at Solomon's prayers and says, deal, deal, hmm. I'll do that. And so, I mean, think about what that invites us to do. You know, when we come to him in prayer, I mean, he almost repeats back to Solomon verbatim everything that Solomon had laid down before him. And God is saying, okay, I'll do that. I will do that. Hmm. You know, and it's the other thing that occurs to me when I look back, like you say, at the the start of the chapter, and you see that um, when Solomon finished his prayer, that fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering and the sacrifices. I think about all of the other times that that happened. I mean, it just seems like that's a um, that's a common sort of ultimate thing that goes on, which is when the Lord shows up, He brings fire. You know, so, um, I remember Isaiah with the when he was uh, competing, or not Isaiah. I'm sorry, it's Elijah yeah. with the prophets of it was Baal, right? Prophets yeah. of Baal, yeah. Prophets of Baal and Asherah, right? So they set up the the thing and they all prayed the the to their false gods, please burn up this offering. And when it was Elijah's turn, he got up there and said, bring some water. 
douse the altar, <laughs> pour it all around. I mean, waterproof this baby or fireproof this baby because you know what's going to happen. And then he said, Lord, and the fire came down and it <laughs> did, licked up the offering and it burned up the altar. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, yeah. so it was just... And, and even in that story, one of the things I love in the context of that story, it was a big contest and the king had invited all of the people of Israel to come to Mount Carmel to see this contest. And it was evangelistic. Like they saw that the real God was Yahweh and it would have, it would have radically changed the nation when the fire fell. And so, you know, you see that all the time at Pentecost when the first revival happens in Acts chapter two, we're told that, you know, fire comes down and, and strange tongues of fire are resting above people's heads. And every time you see in the scriptures or many, many times when you see authentic, fervent revival taking place, you see fire coming down from heaven. And that was something that we talked about uh, in our episode last week where we were talking about uh, the story from Nehemiah 8. We said that one of, the th- one of the things about revival is that when people see, I'm talking about the watching world, not necessarily the people inside the church, when the world sees God bring revival, there's no way to, to it, it's definitely a supernatural thing. You talked about Benjamin Franklin and his his quote from uh, yeah. from the time that revival broke out on the streets of America, you know, and he talked about you couldn't go anywhere without hearing people praying and singing. And as we talk about praying for revival and being hungry for revival, part of what we're asking for is that God would visit us in such a way and and awaken the church in such a way that when people look at it, they say, that's God. You know, yeah. that's not, it's not just a bunch of guys running around all hepped up on caffeine and the sugar <laughs> from their donuts, you know, that the Lord is among them. Um, and I think it, that that's what went on here, too. It's like, do you once, when the fire shows up and burns up the offering, people know God's involved. You know, it's kind of a scary thought, you know, fire coming down from heaven. That should be something that we think about and go, that would be kind of terrifying. I, I remember we were in a chapel for the school here and we were singing, um, build your kingdom here mm-hmm. and there's a line in there that says set your church on fire and i was thinking you know we might want to clarify this with some of the children <laughs> <laughs> but but the idea is that fire is is a refiner's fire it's going to come down and if you if you encounter the power of the holy spirit he is going to consume everything that is not in the image of the sun that means all of the little petty idols that you have, he's, it's going to consume. You're going to lose them. Like he's, he's going to take your desire for them away. He's going to make you wholly his. Like the fire that comes down and consumes the sacrifice consumes it all. Like he takes it over. He makes it his. And so the idea, if, if we're called living sacrifices in the scriptures, right? Well, what does that mean? It means that that we are entirely devoted to the service of the Lord. We are His, and when the fire comes upon the sacrifice, it's going to consume it. However, God wants. When you talk about fire, of course, and well, well, first of all, when you talk about anything, it immediately reminds me of something Paul wrote. Um, <laughs> and of course, I'm thinking of First Corinthians chapter three, verses ten to fifteen, where Paul writes, "According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder." I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. This was, this was, by the way, in response to, I guess there was some contention between Paul and other preachers and teachers, and, and, and the people were perceiving a competition. I'm following Paul. I'm following Apollos. And Paul is like, no, 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 no. This is, we, we're all on the same team here. We're all working together. So he says, I've 
Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And you talk about it being a refiner's fire, and that mm-hmm. my mind is always drawn to that because when you look at the things that are that are there, there's gold and there's silver and there's precious stones. Well, those are all things that are formed under heat and pressure, mm-hmm. and then and then purified under even more heat. You take the, when you dig the gold up, what do you do? You melt it down and burn off the impurities. And wood, hay, and straw obviously are completely consumed by fire. So when we talk about this symbolism of fire being God's spirit, we are saying that part of it is that when it comes down and comes upon us that it's going to burn away the things that are not important and the things that it leaves behind are going to be refined and purified and rewarding, made better. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what that's talking about is is the day where we stand before God at the end of all things and we're facing judgment. But when we think of revival, one of the ideas that I like about revival, it's in Isaiah 64 where Isaiah's praying, you know, rend the heavens and come down. Revival is this little foretaste of heaven here on earth. It's when the Lord comes down and his spirit comes down and overwhelms and gives you just a taste of what it's like to be consumed by his joy, by his peace, by obedience to him, to be satisfied in him. And it's not perfect like heaven will be, but it's a glimpse of what it's like. And that that kind of fire purifies and makes things beautiful here in this world, even for a season. Mm. Now, so the verse in that we're, our, you know, our theme verse, we're talking about the passage from Second Chronicles 7 today, 714. Um, would you then say that that verse was talking about revival? Sure. Okay. So, so I think you know. I think when when this starts up, he's saying you know when something has happened, whether it's God's sovereignty or your behavior that has caused a consequence to fall upon the land. He then says, "If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face," so it's it's like you're coming out of this slumber. He says, if you turn from your wicked ways, and so you've turned from the Lord. He's no longer your desire. He, he's no longer the object of your affection. And so this, this means a turning, a, an awakening, a, a recentering, and that's a revival. So, yeah, they're coming back, you know, is the idea. So if we take that verse and we reverse engineer it for a minute, and we say, what are the things that we can look at as we look around us and look within ourselves? What are the things that we can look for and see that would be impediments to revival. We could start by saying, okay, I'm going to be looking for people who are prideful, mm-hmm. people who neglect prayer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at people who have turned away from God and don't seek him and people that are unrepentant over their sins. <laughs> and I'm, you know, and I, I laugh because it's just, I think about the fact that that describes just 
our world in general yeah. is this this tremendous pride that people have that's misplaced and and we do we you know we get caught up in in our electronic media and our entertainment and our social media and things and we and we don't pray and we don't seek god and this leads to being unrepentant mm-hmm. um so really in the end the things that we do um that cause God to hear from heaven and heal our land, mm-hmm. uh, start with things that we have to stop doing. Yeah. You know, we have, to, we have to root out pride. We have to root out uh, unrepentance. We have to, you know, we have to, to discipline ourselves in prayer and in, in seeking God. That's, yeah. the, that's step one. In, you know, as we seek revival, step one is some self-examination to say, are we doing these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think this verse is really powerful and it's beautiful and it's 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 so awesome but i think it also it works sequentially you know and at the beginning of verse 14 if it says if my people who are called by my name and i'll tell you like if i if i'm just going to make a blanket statement so this isn't fair and i admit it's not fair out of the gates but if <laughs> but I'm, you're going to say it anyway i'm going to say ahead. it anyway all right <laughs> but broadly speaking you know what does the church do more like when we look at the brokenness of our culture when we look at the brokenness of the world you know we are really good at saying if only those people you know, if if only our government, if only, you know, people on the other side of the aisle from us politically, if only, if only, if only, and that's not where God is starting here. He's He is pointing the finger squarely at his church, and he's saying, if my people, don't you worry about all the people that we want to point our fingers at, if my people who are called by my name that's where the hope is. It's not going to come through all the outside, outside the walls and outside entities. It's the church is the hope here. If my people who are called by my name, that's you. And then he gives, I think this is sequential. And step one is humble yourself. Like you need to recognize that you are the problem. Our lack of zeal is the problem. Our kind of milk toast, lukewarm faith where it doesn't cost us anything and we don't love our neighbor and, and we don't love the word and we don't seek Jesus with all of our heart. Like we are the problem. If, if the church was more zealous about its love for the gospel and the kingdom of God and desirous of bringing heaven down, we would not have the world that we have today. And so the problem is us. We've and met, that's we've met the enemy and he is us? Yeah, yeah. I mean really. And so what we need to do is be humbled under the weight of that. And that's the only way you'll ever pray. Because the reason why people don't pray is they believe that they are in control. Somebody who prays has to have come to the realization that they are out of control, that this is something only God can fix, that they are entirely reliant upon God, Mm. and they need him. They recognize that they need him to satisfy their souls. They recognize that they're empty and alone without him. And so it takes humility to come to prayer. Now, that's a big step. (laughs) It really is. For some people, it's really hard to pray. We don't want to pray. But why do we pray? Because that's the mean. That and the word is the means by which we seek his face. Like we fall in love with him. We want more of him. It's the most, you know, the, it's where the expression, the intimacy of a person is. And so you humble yourself and then you begin to pray and then you seek his face. And it's not until you see how beautiful he is 
that it becomes really easy to turn away from everything else because you recognize at that point when you see him for who he is, all the other competitors for your affections start looking pretty lousy Mm -hmm. by comparison, and then you turn from your wicked ways, not because of your willpower and because you're so righteous, but because he's so good Mm -hmm. and he satisfies. And he says, then, right, when I have your hearts, when when you've done those things, when you recognize that you need me and you can't be self-sufficient, that that's what brings all this ruin upon you to start with, then when you come to me, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. I do think also, like you say, being sequential in there, that it is after they do all four of those things mm-hmm. that the Lord hears. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, and and he and first, folks, he hears us anytime that we pray. He's aware of every thought that's in our minds. He's aware of every word that comes out of our mouths. Uh, he knew what we were going to think and what we were going to say before we thought or said them. That's you know, that's the nature of God. He knows everything. Um, so we don't mean to say that God's not going to hear your prayers, but when He says, "Then I will hear from heaven," He's talking about. An affirmative response, like, okay, now I'm going to, this is going to bring action. You know, this is good. I will do this now. I'm ready. I'm ready to do something for you. I think it's also interesting, Sam, you talked about, um, you know, if my people who are called by my name, the Lord has got his finger pointed squarely at his church. It's so common these days. I, I see this on social media. I hear it in conversation. I would, but... I, I would do that, except I can't because, and it's for some other reason other than myself. I think a lot of times we feel like we can't get moving because it's not a perfect situation. It's like God hasn't cleared the way for us to have revival. God hasn't cleared the way for us to serve him. We're waiting for God to remove the roadblocks. I'm like, well, maybe God removed a roadblock, and he wants you to work around the other ones. He wants you to walk between the other ones. You know, one of the interesting things, you know, this is this is a thousand years before Jesus is going to be born, and you have God who is showing up, and, and he's saying, you know, if they do these things, I will forgive their sin. And, you know, the New Testament tells us that, you know, it's not the shedding of the blood of goats and bulls that takes away sin. And so the reason why God can honor Solomon's request for the forgiveness of sin has nothing to do with the animals being sacrificed at the temple, and everything to do with God's promise to bring about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who would be slain for the forgiveness of sin. And it's interesting, the story uh, that leads up to to Solomon building this temple, his father, King David, desperately wanted to build a house for God's name, but because he was a man of bloodshed and had conquered armies and all this stuff, God said, no, he wanted it to be a man of peace. And so there's this this story where David takes a census of Israel. And early in David's life, he was this man after God's own heart. He was wonderful, but he had some stumbles. And at the end of his life, he's he's struggling. You know, he's he still loves the Lord. He's still chasing after the Lord, but he's struggling. And so when he takes the census, he makes it about himself. And he becomes very prideful in it. And God comes and he's displeased. And David recognizes this when he's confronted on it. And he says, I've sinned greatly and that I've done this thing. Please take away the iniquity of your servant for I've acted foolishly. And God comes to him through a prophet and says something pretty amazing coming from God. He says, I'm going to give you an option of three things, David. So I want you to choose whichever one you want. You can have three years of famine, 
three months of your enemies coming and attacking you by the sword, or you can have three days of pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord coming through and just destroying. And so David actually says something interesting here. Now, he knows he's done wrong, and he's terrified of the consequence, but he says, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. I trust that it'll it'll eventually relent, but don't let me fall into the hands of men. And so, sure enough, the Lord sends this pestilence through Israel. And David, on the third day, the morning of the third day, so all, all of a sudden your ears should be perking up there, it says, the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. Interesting. Now, we know that the angel of the Lord almost always, as you read through the Old Testament, is the pre-incarnate Jesus. It's God himself, right? And in his hand is a, is a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And so David says to God, now listen to the heart of David. He says, Was it, wasn't it I who gave the command to number the people? It, it's I who sinned, and I've done evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O oh my God, be against me and against my father's house. But don't let the plague be on the people. And so the angel of the Lord looks at David at this moment, and he instructs him. He wants him to buy this threshing floor. Now, this is going to make sense in a minute. Now, the threshing floor was on the top of Mount Moriah, which is in Jerusalem. It's where the temple is going to be built. And so what happens is David goes and he buys this particular location in the hopes that his son is going to build the temple right at this location. And then we're told that David builds an altar and he makes a sacrifice there. And I want you to hear verse 29 in, in this chapter, First Chronicles 21. He says, At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the burnt and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place of Gibeon. But David, listen to this, David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And you think, well, that, that doesn't sound like my God. You know, David, here's this man after God's own heart who's offering sacrifices because he's afraid to go to the tabernacle where God dwells. He's afraid of the, the sword of the angel of the Lord, of the pre-incarnate Christ, and that you think of that. And here's what's beautiful. The, the three days of death that fell at that time are going to fall on the very one who is that angel of the Lord. You know, David was afraid to, to experience the wrath of God in that moment. And the very one who held that sword is going to take the sword upon himself. He is going to bear the wrath. He's going to, to, to take three days of death. And what does he do? At the end of those three days, out of his own mouth, he talks about how his defeat of death is the construction and the building of a new temple. He will rebuild the temple in three days. That's what Jesus says. And so on the other side of this, now you have the security of all the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has borne the pestilence. Jesus has borne the sword of God's wrath. He's defeated death in three days. And now all of the mercy that has ever been shown to David David or the Israelites or to you or to me is because God bore the justice, the ultimate justice, so that you and I could have freedom and forgiveness in his eyes. 
And so the temple that Solomon is going to build is ultimately looking forward to the much, much, much greater temple, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his work, he purifies us to where now we become the dwelling places of God himself. It's interesting that the temple was built on a a threshing floor. Uh, Why don't you explain what a threshing floor is for people that yeah, so, so that haven't been back in those times. <laughs> yeah, so a threshing floor, it is, it's actually pretty, pretty interesting. So you would go, if you were a, a farmer and you got your crop, let's say, you know, wheat, you would go to the top of a mountain where you had the strongest winds and you would throw up, you know, the harvest and the, the strength of the wind would blow the chaff, all the garbage, right? It would blow it away, but the, the real wheat would fall back down. And you would, then you would harvest the wheat, but you would get rid of the chaff, and so you would go to the top of the mountain where the winds were strong. And so, you know, Jesus, all, you know, that's something that you see in the Bible, both in Old Testament and New Testament, that the Lord is seeking to separate the wheat from the chaff. Because there's times when I think people will wonder about, What's the point about a threshing floor? You know, it's like, I don't understand. God wants to build a temple. Why didn't he pick a place that was already cleared? Um, No, there's there's symbolism to the threshing floor. And and also, frankly, you know, if there's a threshing floor, the land had already probably been leveled. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that was a good spot to use for building. Yeah, and so if, if you were to look at the city of Jerusalem back in these days, there's a there's a southern slope that comes down and that's where David had built Zion. That's where David's palace was. And so to the north, he'd actually reserved that area and then bought it from this Jebusite to build the temple. And so in this great uh, celebration, when Solomon finishes the temple, he says that he'd built the temple exactly according to the design. And then when he had finished the work, we're told they take the Ark of the Covenant, which is the place where God's glory dwells inside the tabernacle, and they carry it up from the southern slope of Jerusalem, from where Zion is, and they place it in the heart of the temple. And inside the, it says inside the Ark of the Covenant at this time are only the the two tablets. Normally there were some other stuff in there, but at this point only the Word of God is in there. And when it's placed in the heart of the temple, when the priests back out of the temple, it's overwhelmed with the glory of God. The smoke is so thick, the priest can't go in and stand in it. It is so powerful a moment that even the priest can't stand in there. The glory is too overwhelming. And you see that pattern again and again. You know, you saw, and 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 this applies to us, by the way. This isn't some you know Old Testament history. And the tabernacle, God's glory shined in the midst of the tabernacle when His word was put in the heart of it. And the temple, the temple comes alive with the Shekinah glory of God when the word is put in the heart of it. The second temple, the same is true. When Jesus comes in John chapter one, we're told, and it says, you know. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was God, and the Word was with God. And then it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. The idea is when the Word comes in a tabernacle, whether it's a flesh or stone, God's glory shines. And so when you see that in the New Testament, when we are now purified, when we take on the righteousness of Christ, when we become the dwelling places of the Spirit of God, when the Word is put in our hearts, God's glory comes and revival is sparked. 
But in this, in this, you see the importance. The word always has to be in the heart of the temple before the Shekinah glory falls. Sure, and you know, and forgive me again for going to Paul, but Paul in First Corinthians six says, "Don't you know that your body is temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God?" First Peter two five, we're living stones that God is building into His spiritual temple. Uh, what's more, you're His holy priests. It says so when we when we look at stories like that from the Old Testament as as sort of modern day Christians, if we can view ourselves that, if we view ourselves that way, we look at the stories from the Old Testament. And when you see stories like this that are talking about the temple, God's talking about you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the word in the heart of the temple is, is referring to the word in the heart of his people. So, yep. you know, that's where, um, and that's where this, that's where the steps toward revival are going to begin. Uh, they're going to begin when his people take his word into their hearts uh, when it becomes at the center of everything that we're doing. That's the point at which we start to be able to recognize our own pride, uh, that we turn to him in prayer, that we do seek his face, and that ultimately those things result in us being repentant. I do think that it's interesting, um, it's kind of looping back to the Second Chronicles 714 thing, that, as you say, that it's, it's a sequential process and that repentance comes at the end. Because I also think that there's a perception, uh, especially as it has to do with revival, that people look at uh, the idea of revival and think that the first thing that happens is that you become repentant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think that's true because I think that unless we are truly humbled and praying and seeking God that we don't realize the extent of what we have to repent from. (laughs) That these things are revealed to us through that process of humbling ourselves and of turning to him and of praying and reading his word. And that's the point at which then we can truly be crushed and repentant. So I remember I being in seminary, right? And I still had secret addictions that I was, you know, my wife knew about, but nobody else knew about. And they were shameful. And I didn't want anyone else to know. And I would try like crazy. I would try like, I need to get over this. I need to get over this. And every time I'd fail again and again. And I remember talking to my father-in-law and his, his, his comment to me was just so simple, but really profound. He says, you know, you don't need to try harder. You need to love more. And I thought, huh, like, you don't need to try harder in your strength. You need to see Jesus as more beautiful. So love him more. Seek after him. And sure enough, that's how this happens. You don't turn from your wicked ways because, you know what, I'm doggone it, I'm strong enough. And no, it comes after you've been, you're humbled and you're in relationship and you're praying and you see the beauty of his face. That's when you turn from your wicked ways. But when I first came to faith, you know, when people were saying, you know, here's Jesus, do you want him? Everything in me was like, you know what, I do, but I don't want to turn from my wicked ways. <laughs> you right. know, I, right. I don't want to stop doing these behaviors. And so I kept religion at arm's length. And that's the absolute, like you just said, that's the absolute backwards way to go. Like the wicked ways are the last thing in the process. The first part is humbling yourself and just seeing how wonderful he is because it's his power that enables you to turn from wicked ways, not your own. There's there's times when I think it's comfortable or, or common for Christians, especially people that have been believers for a while, to regard the gospel as the starting point. Like, oh yeah, I understand. You know, I understand this th- grace, forgiveness, right? That's yeah, got that. Now what's next? I'm like, no, no, it's not what's next. 
<laughs> that's the basis of everything. That yeah. doesn't that doesn't happen one time and then it's over. That's something that happens every single day. And I think that when we allow ourselves to get away from that, when we allow ourselves to feel like we've moved beyond the gospel because we've been Christians for longer. No. You know, it just undergirds everything else because there's times when you you're reading in the Bible, you're thinking, I there's no way I can do this. There's this doesn't sound anything like me. Like, well, it doesn't sound like you today, yeah. but it sounds like what you can be. And so where you are today is you're in need of God's grace. You you need to 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 truly feel forgiven because that's also a huge problem with people is that God tells you that you're forgiven and you're like, thanks, God, but you don't feel forgiven. And if, the, if forgiveness is not a reality to you, if you haven't really understood that, yes, God has forgiven you, then you can never move past that. You can never get past your guilt. And so you're always regarding yourself as, well, I'm really a dirtbag and I just don't deserve this and I don't deserve that. I might as well go get drunk. You know, and, yeah. and, and that's, that's how you end up. That's, I mean, that's how the devil keeps you mired in those things. Yeah, but it's that exact reality coupled with the fact that God still loves you. You know, it's the kindness that blows me away. You know, my brother, um, who, who I love to pieces, has recently come on fire for the Lord. And this is something that has taken me quite a bit by surprise. You know, like he is calling me nonstop to ask me questions about the Spirit and about Jesus, and it's awesome. But he's talking to me, and I mean, how fired up he is. Like, I've never seen this side of anyone in my family, so it's kind of wonderful. But he was telling me, you know, he was in his bed, you know, and he's he's had drinking issues in the past and all kinds of stuff going on in his life. He says he was in his bed, his wife asleep next to him, and he just started giggling and shouting, I'm going to heaven. With, <laughs> like, if you know my family and if you know my brother, you know how – and that what? That's impossible. That yeah. could not happen. And yet he's so overwhelmed with the joy and knowing that God loved him and that his past hasn't, you know, shut the door in his face and he's caught a taste of the grace of God to where he's in his bed giggling and delight over the fact that he's God's and that he's going to heaven. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, I'm the pastor. Why don't I need that joy? Like, <laughs> have, have I forgotten how wonderful and amazing this is? And it's, it's very fun to see someone else who gets it. But it's like you said, you know, we can we can get stale to this, right. and every once in a while, we need to remember that, like him, you know, this is this is something that we should be laughing about and delight that God still chases us and wants us, and we're going to heaven not because of anything we've done, but because He's so good. And that's the kind of thing that produces that first love in us. And as we talked about last week, that's part of the message of revival is to try to recapture that first love, to try to recapture the joy that we had when we first came to faith. Because I think that our joy gets robbed for a lot of different reasons, and God wants to restore that. You know, he, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, uh, and I'm going to, was it in Nehemiah or where, where did you, you actually quoted it. I guess it was from Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yeah, that's Nehemiah 8.10. Right. One of my my favorites. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so, you know, God wants us to to have joy in him. And that is going to be the thing that strengthens us. And if you're not, you know, if if as you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking, I know there's a lot of things about my life with God and the way I relate to God. I wouldn't put joyous on the list. Then that's, you know, okay, I think we've identified one of the problems. <laughs> and that's a place to, to look at. And, and joy comes from that realization of, hey, you know what? My past doesn't prevent me from 
reaching God. God is not separated from me by my sin. He's cleared that out of the way. And, and, and I can't, and as your brother says, I am going to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, but that's not, but that's, again, that's just, that's the beginning point. And one of the best parts about, uh, this, about the Christian life and in my estimation is that you start you start with this wondrous realization and then you keep that wondrous realization and you just keep adding to it. Yeah. You know, there's so many other things in life where you're like, okay, um, that's the way, you know, we talk about the good old days and um, how I was when I was a kid and everybody's looking back as it did. And when you're talking about your walk with the Lord, he wants you to, he wants you to keep with you the same realization and the same joy that you had the very first day that you turned to him. He wants that. You know, he wants you to hang on to that. And so as as we find ourselves as a as a church contemplating what do we have to do in order to bring about revival, I think one of the first things, Sam, we have to do is we have to start by saying, hey, how different am I today from where I was when I first came to faith? Mm-hmm. You know? And and you're, it's something you got to keep fighting for. You know, it's it's like part of the wisdom of Solomon in this passage, as he says, "And when we do this, and, and when we do this, yeah. and when we do this, <laughs> and and you like, will do that." Yeah, and and you know, the Lord isn't scared off by that. He says, "Well, if you do that dumb thing, then you're out." No, He says, "If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray for me and seek my face for the first time, for the fiftieth time, for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time, and they turn from their wicked ways again and again." I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Like his grace and his mercy is always open to you, always. And we'll let that stand as our last word on the subject of revival for this week. Uh, We hope that you have enjoyed your time with us. It's been profitable for you. Uh, We do encourage you that uh, if you're following along with our series, When God Moves at Rio Vista Church, um, that you make sure to stay up with the latest uh, messages on our website or on our smartphone app or now on our YouTube channel. If you want to check us out there, youtube.com slash Rio Vista Church. We're uploading our full services there uh, each week, and we're also uploading our sermons uh, after the service takes place. Um, So we do encourage you to keep up with the, the messages as we go through, as well as these podcasts. If you have questions about the subject of revival if there's something that we've said that uh, has provoked some thoughts that you want to share with us we invite you to send us an email our email address for the show is out of water at rio vista church.com that's r-i-o vista church.com and uh, you can also find all the back episodes of out of water on our website at rio vista church.com slash out of water we'll be back next week with more on the subject of revival and we'll see you then We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.